Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. My is Mark, and uh, we are in the last week of a series that we have been engaged in uh, called Deep Wells. And this is a series which is about what does it look like when God is actually renewing a people. The metaphor Deep Wells came from an experience I had a few weeks ago in London praying in a particular church and finding that underneath that church there was actually a deep well, which was part of a subterranean uh, body of water that Christians like 1,500 years ago in London started gathering around and people would be baptized and it was like a healing spring. Uh, people would come and, and uh, that was not just true of that particular church, but different churches around the city of London had these subterranean uh, waters under them. And it felt like a metaphor that often in church we forget that there are these bodies of water that exist underneath that sometimes are like backfilled, sometimes they're neglected. And often what God does sometimes is get us to this point where we dig down and discover that water again. And what I want to talk about tonight, we talked about uh, tonight, welcome. Uh, I'm just going to have a fake tonight. We can have a fake King's birthday. We want a fake tonight. Uh, What I want to talk about uh, uh, today, the first week we spoke about uh, really that when a church is being renewed, there'll be deep wells of devotion that are discovered. We then looked at often when a church is being renewed, you'll see deep wells of worship, a culture of worship begins to bubble up. People worship differently. We looked last week at this idea that there are deep wells of holiness, that people calls, people, uh, God calls uh, people to be set apart, made holy to him. And what I want to look at tonight is prayer. Again, what's going on? Get up on the wrong side of the bed. Um, uh, what, what I want to look at this morning is uh, prayer. And what I want to do is start with a particular verse that comes in the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 14. It's quite a famous verse. And this is a verse that comes as Solomon has dedicated the temple. Finally, the temple has been rebuilt or built for the first time as a solid structure after the tabernacle. And God comes and the Holy Spirit, like the Spirit of God fills that place. But God then sort of comes to Solomon and gives him this, this sort of warning. You are now people who have the presence amongst you. And he sort of gives this warning how things could go wrong. It's as if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and will hear their land. He doesn't just say pray. Prayer is kind of like the meat in a sandwich of different things here. This is indicating that this is just not a prayer thrown up, just not a normal kind of prayer. We have that concept of humbling themselves, seeking God's face, turning, repentance, and then this interplay where God always wants to move uh, and God always makes the first step. But humans are called into this sort of dance, this response with God leading the dance, and that's really what prayer is. So this is not just normal prayer. And to be honest, when I wrote this sermon earlier in the week, the title I had following on from the other uh, sermons was uh, a, a culture of prayer. But what I want to say is actually when you dig into this, that churches that are being renewed don't just have a culture of prayer, they have a culture of extraordinary prayer. And you can say that word differently. You can say that's extraordinary or you can say that's extraordinary. 
I don't know which side you, you tend to come down on how you say that word. I actually think we say it with almost different meanings. So I'm not saying extraordinary that the most articulate, Shakespearean-like, beautiful, poetic prayers, rather I'm talking about a kind of prayer which is extraordinary. It's not the usual kinds of prayers that people just pray. And when you do look at so often the state that the church finds itself in, in times of stagnation or retreat, it's really easy to make the argument that the missing ingredient that when the church finds itself in plateauing, stagnation, mediocrity, retreat, is prayer. And I want to argue to you this morning, got it right, that actually I think one of the missing ingredients in the church in Australia is prayer. And I want to do that. Next week we have Robin Lim coming to share and he's going to be sharing about some of the incredible things that happen at Asbury University, which by the way was preceded by extraordinary prayer. And he's going to share with us, I had a chance to catch up with uh, some of the sort of key people shepherding that outpouring um, um, recently. Um, and we're going to hear about that. But I want to talk this week about actually two incredible outpourings of God that occurred in our city in Melbourne, because I think it's really important to tell these stories because often we can have this sense of some of the narratives that we tell about ourselves, this stuff doesn't happen here. So I want to tell about two outpourings of God, but also the role that prayer played. So the first one, probably is one of the sort of great moves of God in our nation. And that was in Melbourne in 1902, one year after Australia was federated at the exhibition buildings in Melbourne. And the catalyst for this was the visit of an American evangelist called Reuben Torrey. Reuben Torrey was someone who was the president of the Moody uh, Institute in Chicago in the United States. And what happened was they'd begun a series of prayer meetings in Chicago and they'd begun them at night. And they had this sense after this incredible move of God that happened in the United States that actually God had a heart not just for their own country, but that God was putting on them hearts, a heart for the world and places that were much further than them. So this group of people began to meet in the buildings in the center of Chicago and they began to pray. And they actually prayed that God would give them a heart for the world. And then strangely, as an answer to their prayers, two strange gentlemen with strange accents who'd come literally from, this is a time before aeroplanes, this is in the, this is in the end of the 19th century, this, when they were negotiating this, into the beginning of the 20th century. These two gentlemen turned up and basically came with an invitation to come to Melbourne and minister there. Almost instantaneously, this group of people who'd been praying in Chicago knew this was the answer to their prayers, that this was a supernatural response to what they'd been asking, God, give us a heart for the nations and places which are very far away. And literally, you think at this time, this was like a journey that took like a month on a boat or something to get there. These two men had originally wanted probably the world's most famous evangelist, Dwight Moody, to come and visit Melbourne. But sadly, Moody had passed away, and so it was his sort of heir apparent, Reuben Torrey, who would then come down to Australia. So he said yes to this invitation. Now, what was interesting was this was a sovereign move of God. The move that began in Melbourne started with a series of meetings, and each meeting got bigger and bigger to the point where actually the meetings had to be held in the Royal Exhibition Buildings. But it couldn't be just contained to Melbourne. It spread into all parts of rural Victoria, 
into the rest of Australia, into the Pacific, and even to other places like India. And so this was an explosion, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they reckoned that around 9,000 people actually uh, uh, became Christians. I'll get to some of the uh, stats in a second. But to find out where this all began, it didn't just begin with these guys rocking up in Chicago. That actually we have to go further back. The historian Helen Dyer writes this, and I think I've got the quote up there. We must go further back to realize fully what God has done in answer to prayer, to reach the hidden springs, notice the language, the hidden springs that have welled up from burdened souls. Mark that sentence. Agonizing for the kingdom of God to come in power. The outpouring in Australia, which commenced the days of grace of this present era, was traced to a band of four who agreed to pray 13 years before the blessing came into fullness. Now, what's interesting is that quote actually comes from a book about Indian Christian history and is actually tracing back one of the moves of God in India to actually, they could trace it back to something that happened in in Melbourne. So it went beyond just the shores of this nation. Well, what was this move that had happened 13 years earlier that Helen Dyer is talking about here? Well, another historian from Macquarie University, Stuart Pigan, picks up the story for us. He says this, the 1902 revival in Australia, which was characterized by contemporaries as a remarkable religious awakening and the big revival, was the culmination of a wave of prayer for revival in Australia. It had a long gestation period. Note that, a long gestation period. In 1889, which was 13 years earlier, John McNeil, who was a man who'd migrated to Australia, found himself in poverty, come from Scotland, came and God put a remarkable burden on his heart to pray for this nation. And because of that burden, him and three other ministers formed what they called the Band of Prayer, which continued to meet every Saturday afternoon for two hours and sometimes for whole nights praying for the great revival until 1902 it came. What actually uh, John McNeil did, he was at a Presbyterian church in Abbotsford and he began going down to Studley Park and preaching to people there. As often people in Melbourne in the afternoons would go and have picnics at Studley Park. And so this movement began to grow, beginning with just four people. One guy and three of his mates begin to pray But they pray in a way which is just not ticking the boxes. This is a kind of extraordinary prayer. So by the time that after 13 years has passed, by the time that Reuben Torrey responding to this invitation, coming all the way from Chicago to Melbourne at the beginning of the 20th century, by this time there were 17,000, sorry, 1,700 neighborhood prayer meetings across Melbourne praying for God to move in this city. The band of four had multiplied into 1,700. And this had an incredible effect. The soil was prepared. The ground was broken up. There was an anticipation. Even by the time that Tori got here, there was stuff already happening. They estimate that around 40,000 people in Melbourne were already eager for the Holy Spirit's outpouring before Tori had even gotten here. There were already 50 mission centers with 50 local evangelists preaching in halls and 30 large tents. This is before Torrey hits the grounds. Meetings in the town hall and theaters with 7,000 seating capacities were consistently full. And so due to the growing numbers, they had to relocate from the town hall to the exhibition buildings in Carlton. 
The weekly attendance for these meetings reached quarter of a million. Now, Melbourne at this time only had 1.2 million people. This was a remarkable move of God. And you can see the big numbers, quarter of a million people at a time when Australia only had 1.2 million people. And just to remind you too that this was not at a time when you know, Melbourne was super Christian. In fact, because of the gold rush that had occurred, there was a deep fear that the church was in significant retreat at the end of the 19th century. This only became worse when we had a significant property bubble burst Prices in Melbourne had gone too far and property became out of the reach of ordinary people. Does this sound like history repeating? Until finally it it collapsed into a significant recession and a depression. And so the church was actually hungering and crying out for God to move. That's when the prayer started of four guys getting together and resulted in quarter of a million people coming. Now the second great move of God in Melbourne actually came in 1959. As again, an American evangelist came to Australia, the famous Billy Graham, and he led a remarkable series of evangelistic meetings. Now, many people have heard of this, and you may have heard some of the statistics that some of Australia's greatest sporting ground attendances are not from cricket tests or football games. They're actually from uh, Billy Graham coming. But what we can ignore is that there was significant concern when Billy Graham first came. Another American pastor had come out, evangelist, to preach, and actually in the year or two before this had been met with such significant opposition that actually had to cut his series of meetings short. Australia was different to the US. It was different to the UK. There was a serious mistrust of religion. And so the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association was actually deeply concerned about coming to Australia. Now, what was interesting was, this is not how it turned out. An incredible amount of Australians turned out. Now, there was this incredible response. Now, so many people came to hear Billy Graham that actually his last event was moved to the MCG because it was the only venue in Melbourne which could actually fill, uh, have enough people. And it was a hugely controversial thing that happened. Again, this is fascinating when you look at the, the sort of cultural reality of our city. There was a massive controversy when the event was moved to the MCG as to whether crowds would be allowed to sit on the grass. This was not a time when, I don't know, Taylor Swift would come or something and play the MCG and people would like meet on the ground. The grass was hallowed turf that only test cricketers and footballers could stand on. This was a key cultural line in Melbourne. But that line was broken for Billy Graham and people were allowed onto the turf because so many people wanted to come. More than 3 million people, nearly a third of Australia's population at that time, attended a 1959 crusade event in person. And by the end of the 1959 Southern Cross Crusade, it's estimated that half the people in Australia had heard Billy Graham's gospel message either in person or through the airwaves or telephone lines. Now, again, as with the greater move that occurred in 1902, the roots of this remarkable move of God actually can be traced back earlier. Now, Graham had said this. I don't know if I got this quote. I don't think I do. For some reason, I could not fully understand 
although I believe it's the leading of the Holy Spirit, I developed an overwhelming burden to visit the distant continent of Australia. Now, what had happened was very similar to the 1902 uh, outpouring of God, a prayer movement had begun in Australia earlier. So a year earlier in this case, in 1958, a full year before, the Graham's, before Graham's arrival, a campaign of prayer had begun in Melbourne. And the prayer team had begun praying a particular scripture over the city of Melbourne, 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. They stated their goal as this, this prayer movement. To have the people of Melbourne, of the Melbourne area, become revival conscious. Only as God's people become concerned and burdened for conditions around them, and only as people become aware of their spiritual need, can the Holy Spirit come in a mighty and convicting power, converting power, convicting and converting power. The movement of prayer grew to the point where over 1,400 prayer groups were meeting across Melbourne by the time that Graham hit the ground. Billy Graham came to a Melbourne that was not resistant like in the earlier visit of the other American evangelists. Instead, he came to a place where the ground had been prepared and broken up by prayer. The harvest of souls that came to Jesus. And I have met many people in that age group, many of the key Christian leaders, leading denominations, leading movements, many of them came to faith by coming forward at a Billy Graham uh, conference or in the sort of wave of uh, different people coming to faith after that. This was a harvest, but this was a harvest that followed a sowing of prayer. And that's a really key concept we need to understand. Harvests, for a harvest to come, must be preceded by a sowing of prayer. So such a fruit of renewal emerges from a particular kind of prayer. This is why I say it's not just a culture of prayer, it's a culture of extraordinary prayer. And a culture of extraordinary prayer emerges when we see a few things happening. Firstly, prayer moves beyond the faithful few. What is happening at a personal level begins to flow into a corporate effort. Every church has a faithful few who pray. Every church has people who pray in their personal lives. But when this begins to coalesce and come together in a kind of corporate effort where people make a decision together, this is when things begin to change, becoming a kind of extraordinary prayer. And that's the key. Extraordinary prayer is the marker of a community being renewed. But it's also one of the preconditions of a community being renewed. So I just want to just outline three key elements of a culture of extraordinary prayer. And you'll see some of these words in some of the statements that some of the historians and different people who spoke of these moves of God in Melbourne outlined. You'll notice they talked about the kind of prayer that emerges from agonized souls, souls with a burden. And this points us to our first element. The first element is extraordinary prayer that often is a precondition for God moving mightily, at his sovereignty. So let me just get this right. I am not saying that humans can make God's outpourings happen. But again, there's a kind of dance with God leading. You see this, where God invites us into this kind of prayer to shape us into the kind of people he can then use and move amongst. So the first thing is burdened prayer. Burdened prayer. 
What's burden prayer? Well, burden begins with not accepting the status quo of our faith, the mediocre spiritual life of the church, and the concerning conditions of our culture. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote in his great book on revival, he says this, here is the vital questions. Have you seen the desperate need of prayer? The prayer of the whole church. I, see, I shall see no hope until individual members of the church are praying for revival, perhaps meeting in one another's homes, meeting in groups amongst friends, meeting together in churches, meeting anywhere you like, and praying with urgency and concentration for a shedding forth of the power of God, such as he shed forth 100 and, or two, and 200 years ago and in every other period of revival and awakening, reawakening. There's no hope until we do. But the moment we do, hope enters. So burden is not something we can muster up. We can't will it into being. We must ask for it. There is this kind of interplay between human emotion and and, and human will and, and, and God working at that time. Pete Gregg said something which I've thought a lot about recently. Pete Gregg, I heard him say this, I don't know, maybe a year ago or something. He said, if you get a terrible diagnosis... Medically, you don't just want someone lighting a candle for you. That stuff's great. He loves lighting candles, he said. But he says, you want someone, when that comes, is going to kick heaven's door down, contending for God to move. And I thought that a lot in my life in the last few weeks. Henry and Richard Blackaby write this. But if we do not have a burden for those in need of revival and we do not grieve over the fact that God's kingdom is not yet ruling in every heart, church, and nation, then we will inevitably become lax in our praying. The burden we have for revival does not come from within our own noble souls, but comes from the heart of God. So as we pray for this, we pray with Jesus in Luke 2, to us at 22, verse 32, where he says in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. So as we pray in this way with the burden, we actually go from our will, our wants, our desires to God's will, God's wants, God's desires. Our will conforms to his when we pray in accordance with God's will. So the first thing, extraordinary prayer comes from a burden and we need to pray that God will give us a burden. Some of you in this room have a burden. It may be a burden that you have for God to move, to renew his church. It might be a burden that when you saw the ad for Sharon Witt coming for our young people and the next generation coming up, you might see it for the way that we have a cost of living crisis in our culture where increasingly the gap between rich and poor is growing. You might have it when you look on the news and you see war in Ukraine and talk of war in other places. You may be developing a burden. Other people may have a sense of, I don't have that yet. Whether you have it, don't have it, have it in pieces, pray for it. The second thing is that this extraordinary prayer is prayer which is costly. Prayer which is costly. Prayer costs. It's an investment. The great British economist, J.M. Keynes, wrote a book which argued, it's got a treatise on money, not a book I'm recommending you to read today. But he made this really interesting argument Up to that point, most people had seen money as simply an exchange. Money was a symbol, like bartering of, I give you this, I get this in return. But he made this really interesting comment. He said, actually, money is more than that. Money is actually a signal or a statement of intent about what we believe about the future. 
which reveals our confidence or anxiety about the future. When we're not sure about the future, when cultures are not sure about the future, they tend to save. When we think this future is fine and everything's going to be wonderful and we don't need to worry and we're going to be looked after in the future by the government or our parents or our our money in the bank or investments, we spend. So actually how you spend is a sign of what we see in the future. When COVID first came, there was a lot of stimulus. The government put checks in people's pockets and there was this thing that where they were saying, you know, we want people to spend it. And they were saying, come into the city and we'll have all these different, you know, little things you can do and spend at these restaurants. But people weren't spending money. And part of the reason people weren't spending money is the future looked unsure. So money is an indicator of what we believe about the future. Now, I want to bring Keynes' argument. I want to say, actually, this reveals something to us about prayer. In the same way as money is a statement of intent about the future, in the same way our prayers are a statement of our intent in the future. How much are we invested in God's future? When we pray now, just as John McNeil did in Abbotsford in the end of the 19th century, he prayed for God to move. You know the interesting thing about John McNeil? John McNeil prayed and Reuben Torrey came in 1902 and God moved powerfully. But John McNeil never saw it because only a handful of years earlier, after this incredible campaign of prayer, he went to Queensland and was at a, I think he was picking up a coat that he's having being repaired in a store in Queensland and he, he dropped dead. He never got to see what his actual investment But actually, despite him being called home by the Lord, the investment that he put into the ground, into the kingdom, into the eternal of praying and creating this movement of prayer, that's still bad fruit. Just as someone who makes an investment in a trust or something that can bless people after they passed away or an investment or inheritance is passed on, prayer is also part of God's economy. It's an investment in God's future. It's sowing, and we believe that God wants to renew us, that we don't just have to believe the stories that the future's going to be worse, the nihilistic script of our culture that everything's going to get worse or humans can make everything better only in their own power. When we pray, we move from a human-powered economy into a spiritual economy, and we believe that God wants to bring his new creation in the future, and that new creation can break into now. So it costs. And just as we understand with investments that if you're going to invest something, you have to take some money that you might have spent on, I don't know, Wendy's Thick Shakes and put that into an investment fund. It's a big amount on Wendy's Thick Shakes. The costs. And in the same way, extraordinary pair is always marked by costs. You saw there's those 4 a.m. slots. They ignite the fire. Now, is prayers at 4 a.m. more powerful than, than prayers at 11 a.m. after you've had a sleep in? Well, I don't think they are, necessarily. But I also do think that God responds when people seek his face as Second Chronicles. God is looking for a people who are humbling themselves and seeking his face. And we can make that investment in the future. So prayer costs. But also that cost is showing that we're willing to be people who can partner with God in what he's doing. The last one is prevailing prayer. Prevailing prayer. Ruben Torrey noted that when he reached Melbourne, he met a woman who was one of the first groups of people who'd actually prayed. And she'd been struck by the Holy Spirit, reading a book on prayer 
And she read this whole book, but two words stuck out for her in this book. And they were the words, pray through. Pray through. And this just hits her. And this woman, we don't know much about her, but she impressed Tori because she had the spirit of prayer that Tori knew broke up ground in cities. She was determined to pray through, through not seeing it, through good times, through bad times, through moments when she felt spiritually dry, through moments when she felt spiritually alive. Pray through when people who had started the prayer journey didn't finish the prayer journey with you. To pray through when discouragement came. To pray through when she saw things not happening. She was determined to pray through. The other great evangelist, Albert Finney, basically, Charles Finney. Albert Finney, was he like a character from some English sitcom? Sorry. (laughs) Finney, Charles Finney. He, again, had this incredible ministry of praying, uh, sorry, of, of preaching the gospel. But what wasn't known, he had a sort of lieutenant, a guy called Father Nash. And Father Nash would go ahead into the cities where Finney was going to preach. And he would find a really cheap dwelling. Often it was just like a cellar in someone's house. And he would just get on his knees and he would pray this kind of prevailing prayer for God to move. And this prevailing prayer is another common element of extraordinary prayer. It's a praying with resilience, perseverance, through good times but also difficulty, contending for God in the way that Jacob wrestled with the angel for a blessing. And I believe at this moment, when we're having to put on seminars about low resilience in our next generation, in a time where these have turned our attention spans super short, God is looking for those who will prevail in prayer. God is looking for a people ready for him to move amongst And ours is a city again, just as in 1902 and 1958, that God is looking for people who are willing to break up the ground. God is looking for people who are willing to prepare the soil. God is looking for people who are going to step in for extraordinary prayer. And then note again and again in all the stories of history, it's not the most credentialed people. It's not the people with the highest notch on the hierarchical chart. It's actually people have that burden, the heart to go after God. It's not just the people who naturally will turn up to a prayer meeting. It's when people step forward and say, I want to be part of this thing that God is doing. And I think that's the invitation before us. So I'd love to invite you to stand as we very appropriately pray. God, we hear these stories about our city and we recognise how they actually run quite contrary to what we maybe even believe in our hearts about our city. The thought of you moving powerfully in our town through human eyes is actually hard to imagine. To think of the big buildings, the town halls, the exhibition buildings, the MCGs to be filled with people seeking you, I just have to admit, I think most of us would probably struggle to imagine that in our day and age through our human eyes. But God, we want to pray that you begin to give us a burden, 
that you give us a burden for not just accepting the status quo of a mediocre faith, a stagnating church, a declining church. God, we look at our culture and every day you see another article where you wonder where we are going. And so, God, I just pray too that we don't just be like the frog in the kettle being slowly boiled and not realising it. God, give us a burden for your heart. We pray with Jesus in the garden, not my, our will, but yours. Father, conform us to your will. Give us a heart for your will. God, I just want to pray for people who perhaps at this moment realise they don't have a burden. Give us a burden. Break our heart for what breaks yours as the song goes. God, I want to pray to Father for that investment. We know that we live also in a, in a place which has got one of the highest standards of living in the world. We live in a city which there is a lot of money around. And God, I just want to just pray, Father, that you move us from our economy to your heavenly economy. Help us to see prayer as an investment in your future. God, actually help us to see that what we are doing is actually laying a path ahead for others in the future. Help us to pray for those who don't know you. Help us to pray for you to move. Help us to pray to break up the ground, to prepare the soil, we pray. And God, also we know that these things aren't a six-week program. God, we know and we think about John McNeil praying for 13 years over this city and never seeing it. But he's willing to make that cost. And Father, we want to be willing to pray and invest our time and that cost in praying for you to move. God, we want to learn to pray in a different way. God, we see that wherever you move in a nation, we think about the church in Korea and the extraordinary ways in which you create a culture of prayer there. We think of ways that you're moving in places like Indonesia now and Indonesia is becoming the prayer room of the world. God, teach us how to pray with extraordinary prayer. And God, we just pray, Father, that you just give a heart for prayer for people in this room. May it start in the quiet spaces. God, yeah, we want to pray by lighting candles and we want to pray by, by just maybe praying as we're driving and having a quiet time in the morning. But Father, we also want to pray in ways where corporately we are kicking down the door of heaven, <laughs> contending for you to move. So God, we just pray, Father, give us a heart of prayer. Move in our city again. Renew us, we pray. In Jesus' name, let's worship.